Thank you so much, Eric, for, for coming on the show today. I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, I discovered you from your book, uh, The Almanac of Naval Ravikant. And, you know, I understand you're also a product strategist at Zarly, helping people find home services. You've gotten a business blog that's a few years old at this point. Um, that's got a lot of nice material on there. And then you're also uh, reviewing online courses, something called Course Correctly. So you're doing a lot, um, a lot of interesting things. Uh, but, you know, first and foremost, I wanted to get together because the book was just fascinating to me. I've, I've liked Naval for a while now. Um, no one's taken, you know, the, the length of effort that you did in putting his wisdom into something that could be consumed relatively quickly. And then also kind of referenced there on after for, for these pieces of advice, whether it comes to, you know, wealth or happiness, whatever it might be. Um, for those people who, who aren't so familiar with you or with the book, would love to hear, you know, from the, from the bottom up, growing up, your story, uh, how you got to where you are today. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I kind of always, uh, you know, my, my dad ran a business that my grandfather started. And so we were always kind of an entrepreneurial household. Uh, so I was busy like selling candy out of my locker and getting paid to give kids rides to school and stuff. Um, so, you know, I'm always kind of looking for looking for opportunities. Um, I was really excited to kind of work in the startup world. Um, I was in college when like Facebook was blowing up and, you know, entrepreneurship and tech were almost synonymous, um, which is definitely not true, but that's, that's how it looked to me at 18. Um, so it's, uh, it's been a fun kind of place to be. And, uh, you know, this book is just kind of one of a long series of things that I thought that the world needed and, uh, was excited to kind of take on as like a, almost as a hobby that, uh, you know, ends up doing some people some good. So it was, it was a lot of fun to do and rewarding for me personally. And it's really exciting to kind of share it with the world and, uh, you know, here people are enjoying it. So do you have like a lot of free time outside of your work at, at Zarly or at least enough where you're able to kind of pursue these passion projects? Um, yeah, it's not, it's not a lot of time actually. Um, but, uh, you know, when you give yourself kind of no deadline, like that, that was the good thing about this is that, you know, some weeks or months I didn't have any time to work on it at all, but, uh, but there was no deadline. So I could just kind of keep, um, putting time into it when I could find time. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not like a newsletter or something like that where I have to, you know, put in a couple hours a week. Um, you know, so it's, it's like running a marathon, like a little few chunks at a time. And when I can gain the ground, I do it. Um, so it's, it kind of is a perfect type of project to fit around, you know, around my life now and not interfere too much with, uh, you know, my other, other commitments. Um, but, uh, it's, it's good for me, you know, it's like, um, it's, it's almost like a study and I work harder, you know, knowing that I have a, a final product that I'm going to put out there and put my name on it and share with people. Um, you know, a lot of people take notes when they're reading, but when you're taking notes to the level of making it a good enough thing to publish under your own name, you just work a lot harder at it. You put in a lot more reps and um, invest a lot more in, in the final product. And I think I'm better for it. And I think the world's better for it. So I, I think it's a good, uh, it's a good practice. Yeah, look, man, I mean, I certainly appreciate it. I've, you know, like I said, Naval, you can follow him on Twitter and get some of his wisdom that way. I think his podcasts are pretty underrated specifically. He has like a three hour one, which is basically an extension. I mean, I don't need to tell you about it, but for those listening, it's an extension of, uh, you know, his, his famous how to get rich tweet thread, uh, tweet storm, I guess it's called. 
Um, and the podcast I actually thought was like, you know, an order of magnitude more, you know, insightful for me. I, I think I also just prefer the long form. Uh, and some of these mm-hmm. short, short form tweets are, you know, they carry a lot of weight and I'm not taking anything away from his ability to summarize big points into a few words. But for me, it's helpful to get the context as well. Um, so you, I imagine you kind of became interested in Naval years ago and then uh, have just been kind of ruthlessly consuming his content. And then, you know, I understand initial drafts of your book were several times longer than it ended up being. Um, you know, what's it like to kind of turn yourself into basically the expert on Naval's wisdom and, you know, whether it's again, wealth or happiness or everything. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't even know that, um, you know, I've spent a lot of time with the ideas, uh, you know, and kind of a broad slice of them. Um, you know, I'm sure there's people who are much smarter at, than me at any individual one of them. Um, you know, I, I've been, I've learned a lot from Naval and I've been following him for, you know, 10 years or so. Um, since kind of the early days that he started blogging. Um, but he's talked about a lot of different things over those, you know, 10 years as his focus has shifted and as his attention has kind of um, turned from building a company to building a fund to, you know, pursuing happiness and, you know, preserving um, and investing and some of those sorts of things. Um, I don't know. I think it was the right thing for me to be studying with, you know, where, where I am in life. And that's different for everybody. Um, There's definitely like a foundation of concepts that it helps to kind of understand uh, if you're going to be able to unpack, you know, something like a tweet or a tweet storm um, into the full understanding. And kind of that was the practice um, that I did for the book and um, that I hope helps other people, you know, exactly like you said, it's, it's rewarding maybe to read a tweet storm, but um, if you can't, you know, kind of expand one of those subfolders or one of those words into, you know, understanding all the implications of compounding and how to actually evaluate it or use it, um, you know, accountability leverage is one of those words. Like you could write an entire book on leverage. You could write an entire book on accountability. Uh, you could write an entire book on compounding. And, and those are things that have all kind of, um, says that the concepts are important, but he's not going to take the time to break them all down individually all the way down to kind of, um, you know, first, first principles, like he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to be there writing a textbook about it. Um, and so it takes, you know, some of that context and some of that study outside of, of what he actually talks about to kind of get the full value of it, I think. Right. And that's what I want to spend some time doing today is talking with you about some of these concepts and, you know, Obviously, Naval's not here. Like we appreciate the uh, the initial words and the jump start on some of these ideas. But I'd like to, you know, I've I've heard you speak on other podcasts and things like that, and think you have a really interesting perspective. I, I, and these things obviously are somewhat important to varying degrees to me as well in terms of the to- the sorts of um, you know lessons and guiding principles that he talks about. So would love to kind of just shoot him back and forth with you. Uh, first one, I think you you mentioned. Uh, is kind of the value of compound interest. He talks about how all returns in life, whether it's um, wealth, relationships, or knowledge, basically come from compound interest. And, you know, on on the money side, it's fairly obvious. It's like, you know, everyone kind of understands, maybe honestly not everyone understands, but for people who are familiar with the term compound interest, they're familiar with it usually in the sense that if you put money into an account that's growing 10% every year, uh, that will grow surprisingly quickly over time because the base is growing and the percentage is the same. And so 
um, you know, I forget what it is exactly, but it's like one, a hundred dollars can like 37 X over the course of a year or something like that. Um, And so it's a very powerful thing. Einstein once said that like compound interest might be the most powerful force in the universe. I think, Uh, how do you think about compound interest, whether it's in money, in relationships, anything else in terms of, you know, and how are you using it in your life? Yeah, it's, it is definitely an important um, concept and it kind of comes from, um, you know, my, my family was uh, enough of a like dabbling in amateur investing to kind of talk about um, compounding and, uh, you know, uh, all of what Jack Bogle says and Warren Buffett preached about just, you know, definitely living below your means, saving, reinvesting, um, and, and how much, you know, it, it doesn't look like much every day, but over, you know, a decade or a lifetime, uh, the changes of that are, are absolutely incredible. And that's, you know, one of the kind of key pieces of compounding is that it, it looks very slow at first. And for maybe a long time, it looks, um, like almost nothing is happening. Um, but with patience and the right temperament and, you know, dedication to that idea, um, really, really incredible things happen. I mean, you know, if you look at Warren Buffett has had almost two entire careers as an investor, you know, he's, he started when he was, you know, 13 or 14 buying his first stocks. And now he's in his nineties. Like that's incredible. Um, and so much of his wealth actually came, you know, when he was in his sixties and seventies and eighties, you know, he, he was, he has had great results the whole time, but the nature of compounding is that each year, you know, now that he's in his eighties and nineties is, you know, more adds more incremental wealth than his first 10 or 20 years combined. Um, and that is really, really incredible, but it takes the vision of what can happen over 80 years to persist through the first, you know, 10, 20, 30 before you start to really see those effects take place. Um, you know, and Naval talks about, you know, this is compounding is talked about a lot in the financial world, but, um, Naval kind of generalizes that a little bit to, you know, the compounding trust of relationships and, um, you know, compounding focus on ideas and persistence around starting companies and um, things like that. So looking at, you know, compounding just as a, as a general principle that all of the best things come from, you know, patience and persistence and dedication to incremental inputs and, um, eventual exponential outputs, uh, you know, having the mindset that you're willing to kind of, um, be impatient with, you know, those inputs and patient with the results, um, to, to see what can come of compounding and to trust that that is, you know, what's at the other end of that, that patience and that effort. Yeah. I think it's, it's valuable for me in the sense that, um, you know, it gives you, like you just said, the, the kind of trust to, if, if you can identify certain habits that seem beneficial, although, you know, just like you're not going to get rich overnight, uh, you're also not going to get like ripped overnight. But if you work out every day for 15 minutes for 40 years, you probably like will be, even though it's just 15 minutes. And, and maybe that's, you know, maybe not totally ripped, but uh, you'll be in pretty good shape probably. Uh, so it's an interesting I think concept to be applied uh, far beyond money. And like you said, relationships, I think is, is an interesting way to think about it as well. Um, yeah. So. It's, 
it is maybe the most tangible in, in the financial world. You know, you can look at a compounding chart or like pull out a compounder calculator and, and run some numbers and just, you know, it, it's not intuitive to us how extreme the results are. Um, you know, it's, it's pretty wild. I mean, biologically, like where we see, you can think about it that way for health. It's not mathematically going to work the same way just because we, you know, we get older and we degrade, but it, it's fair to say that like, you know, good habits compound and stack on each other and, and kind of um, that momentum, you know, gets, um, has increasing returns. I think um, it's, it's a little bit of an abuse of the, the formula probably, but um, just as a directionally, is it a directionally correct thought? Like, yeah, probably. So you mentioned, um, you know, the concept of living below your means. Uh, and I think Naval has a quote about this as well, which is, you know, that you basically have a freedom from that, that people who continue to scale their lifestyle and, and therefore their cost of living as they accumulate wealth, which, you know, tends to happen in most, you know, classic traditional career tracks. Uh, so long as you keep scaling your cost of living, you're kind of, you have the golden handcuffs, as they say. Um, when you think about the way that you've like progressed in, in your career, um, you know, you've built, we'll get to leverage later, you've built these um, systems where you can, you know, you launch this book, and it's not just like you're writing it and keeping it to yourself, you have uh, Twitter, and you have other outlets where um, you've established an audience and then you can tell them that you have this book and all of a sudden it's, you know, it's not luck that it goes viral and gets really popular. It's, it's, you know, almost destiny. Um, how have you over time freed up, I guess, the opportunity to, um, you know, not have to continue to work harder and harder to make more and more money to sustain a growing lifestyle? Was it just, simply or maybe you have done that but i'm curious to hear like for me it's something i think about a lot is you know what do i actually need um and and what makes me happy versus what's all that extra stuff that really is just going to put me on a treadmill yeah yeah and and that's a very um you know personal decision like um you know different things make different people happy different people have different levels of needs um different you know personalities and in their family um and some things are are luxuries to some people and um you know just learning to separate like what's a need what's a want what's a a luxury and and like at the same time understanding that you you know have limited time on the earth and in some cases money can buy happiness um you know you can you can buy comfort you can buy safety you can buy um at least fleeting joy um, from from plenty of things, um, but you, you got to like find your own balance. I think, um, but just understanding that you know money is money can only solve your money problems, but there are plenty of money problems, um, and you're gonna if you are living close closer to your means or certainly beyond your means, you're just creating a whole new kind of axis of misery for yourself. Um, and, you know, for those who are kind of trying to build wealth and um, certainly build wealth toward the aim of independence, you know, a, a huge way to accomplish that is just getting, you know, that margin between your earnings and your savings and investing the difference until you can, you know, live off of the compounding returns of your investments and your savings. Um, 
you know, that, that doesn't work for absolutely everybody, but it is certainly like a tried and true formula. Um, and it's, it's, you know, in the same way that, you know, fitness and, and weight gain or weight loss is kind of a function of like calories consumed and calories burned. Um, but most people don't track the, track the calories closely enough to know, um, where they are. It's a matter of like, what are the habits and what are your attitudes and what are your, um, you know, when you're not thinking hard about it and focusing on it, you know, what are the things that you do almost automatically and are they net positive or net negative? Um, and, and usually like that is what's going to determine your long-term results. And so focusing on um, correcting those, those habits, those almost unconscious decisions to be, um, to be sure that you have an instinct and a bias towards net positive decisions instead of net negative decisions um, are going to have absolutely huge, huge returns in life. So you, you talked on another podcast, I think it was with uh, David Perel about uh, kind of a, a mental model that, that you keep, which is that, you know, in, in talking with people seeking advice on career or life, whatever it might be. Um, and I just, I thought of this because the way you just spoke about how it's like a personal thing for everyone, that, that threshold um, of the money that's kind of needed or, you know, the set of things that's needed. Uh, versus, you know, for other people that, that might be a lot higher uh, based on, you know, the way that they grew up, um, certain things regarding, you know, their health that might require them to just, they, they have more expenses for whatever reason, wherever they're born, it might have a higher cost of living. Um, you talked about this, this triangle for people where there's, you know, on, on one corner, there's basically people who prioritize working for themselves and being able to, to work on what they want. There's another corner of people who kind of want the corner office, as you say, uh, and want to optimize for career in a little bit of a, a different way. You know, they, they don't care as much about being able to make the calls. They just want to make a lot of money. Not, you know, there's nothing wrong with that and, and kind of, you know, have people working for them and make big decisions and things like that. And then separately, there's the person who just kind of, uh, you know, work and career is not the biggest thing for them. And they, want to, you know, get a, a comfortable job that pays the bills and, and they go nine to five or whatever it is. And then they can kind of return home and get to their life. Uh, I'm curious, where do you think that, that you are on the spectrum there? And where, like, where do you think Naval's wisdom kind of lends itself most? Yeah, I think um, I, I generalize those a little bit. Um, into you kind of have three options and you basically they are all trade-offs mutual trade-offs with each other um and you can either choose like power or comfort or freedom um and it's really hard to have two of those at the same time and so if you had to pick one of those which would you pick um i i definitely bias towards freedom um i, I wouldn't be all the way extremely there but i'd be probably like much more uh I'd be somewhere in the middle of the triangle, like erring towards erring strongly towards freedom. Um, I think Naval probably would as well. I think Naval's principles um, hold certainly for people pursuing freedom, also very likely for people pursuing power. Um, and there, I don't know, I'm, I'm far enough from a like seeking comfort mindset that, uh, that it's hard to, um, make a snap, a snap judgment. So I'd have to think about it a little bit harder. Um, I think they're probably less, 
prone to that. Um, but it depends a little bit on, you know, how you pursue comfort and what, um, what stage of your career you're in. If you're in later stage of your career and seeking comfort, I think, um, you know, Naval's ideas around building leverage, um, are, are definitely key. Um, you know, accountability is something that is tied very clearly with, um, with power and with freedom. And I think there's a ways to seek comfort where you actually unbundle yourself from accountability um, and you limit your downside to get that comfort and that safety, but you are also limiting your upside. Um, yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, I'd probably have to like sit and write and sketch to like fully wrap my head around it. Um, but it's interesting to kind of overlay those two things. Yeah, no, I think that's a, you know, a, a super insightful response and like not being able to, to sympathize as much with the comfort side of the equation, um, you know, makes sense that, that you might not have as, as strong of a perspective there. Um, leverage is, is something that uh, seems to be, you know, obviously it's a, it's a huge uh, theme for Naval and it seems to be one of the biggest themes for, for you and, and takeaways there as well. Um, you have, I think the, your, your Twitter bio begins with, says, says using levers. Um, you had a, a nice tweet storm the other day of, uh, you know, your thoughts on leverage. Um, and, you know, my understanding, like I, I kind of understand the, the importance of the way it evolved frames. I think that's one of the things where, um, you know, with succinctly, he's able to describe it in a way that's very understandable. Um, but curious to hear how, how you think about leverage and how you, you know, specifically apply it in your own life, whether it's with the book or with Twitter or any other things that, that you do. Yeah. Um, I, I really, um, think that Naval did us all a favor with, uh, just kind of using that term for this new phenomenon. Um, you know, like levers have been around a long time, you know, it's, it's one of the simple machines that built, you know, the pyramids at Stonehenge and like humans have been using levers for a long time. Um, but we are seeing, you know, kind of an increasing and accelerating um, sense of productivity um, as, you know, more and more and more humans, like a higher percentage of the population just focuses on building ever more powerful and useful tools and systems of tools and platforms. And, um, you know, we get more and more networked and better and better at, at kind of driving um, meritocratic adoption of ideas and media. And, um, you know, one of the things Naval says is like, you know, in the age of infinite leverage, like the best person at anything gets to do it for everyone. Um, you know, I, I could very reasonably see that in our lifetimes, you know, the very best math elementary school math teacher in the world is broadcast to billions and billions of people um, because they are just so much more effective at it rather than having, you know, a one to 30 ratio. We now have a one to, you know, 30 million or one to 300 million ratio. Um, and that was never possible before. And that's just a, a, like kind of one example of, you know, the, the amount of um, the amount of leverage that one human can get um, with, with the modern tools that we have here. Um, so it is, I mean, it's super interesting to me. I think, I think that in labeling it, um, Naval has kind of helped us all to have a, a, a weight a piece of language to identify and talk about a phenomenon that is kind of, surrounding us and is, is helping to explain um, a lot of the crazy outcomes that we're seeing, right? Like um, 
Joe Rogan with basically one employee is now, you know, a media company worth hundreds of millions of dollars unto himself. Um, and that is, wasn't possible, you know, 50 years ago, you know, there was Johnny Carson with a late night talk show with a whole bunch of staff and broadcasting and infrastructure and all of these things. Um, but we're now seeing greater and greater accomplishments by fewer and fewer people due to tools and distribution and platforms um, and all of these things that are happening. And essentially like any hour or any day, there are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of digitally cloned Joe Rogans out there, like rebroadcasting and resharing his ideas, um, you know, through these kind of the leverage that comes from digital products. Um, and it's, it's just really, really interesting to see how that's affecting society and where else that's going to go. Like, I, I only see that accelerating, really. Um, and we're seeing it across, you know, almost every aspect of life. And the people who um, see how to kind of gather and apply those levers to their goals are going to massively outwork and outstrip um, and outgrow people who are not, even if they are doing the exact same job. Um, you know, it doesn't matter white collar, blue collar job. It doesn't matter where in the world you are. Um, you know, there's a lot of podcasts out there, but some podcasts are a million times bigger than others. And some of it is due to quality and some of it is due to leverage. Um, and those things are very, uh, interrelated and we're just going to see that gap kind of keep growing. The levered are going to get more levered, uh, and people who don't understand that don't see that that's the game that's getting played, um, are, are, just, I think, going to be kind of um, stuck and confused about it. And so I'm trying to kind of keep unpacking those ideas and um, help people see them and help people talk about them and, you know, pull together more of those playbooks and, um, you know, help people solve problems in, in leveraged ways. Yeah. And that's a, a great overview. And like, I know, I know you're thinking about this kind of stuff a lot. Uh, you mentioned like one example of you know the the teacher the the best teacher in a certain course is all of a sudden uh available you know she, she he or she can teach um you know millions you know even a billion hypothetically people there's zero marginal cost to delivering an online product uh over the internet across the world um what are some other you know whether it's the digital product side of leverage or um you know something that's even you know less novel such as kind of the, the capital or, or labor side of it. Um, what are some specific examples that, that you see coming to fruition? Like you talk about how kind of the leveraged will, will separate from the unleveraged and it's only just the beginning. I mean, you think about the internet, it's only seriously like 20, 25 years old uh, at most. Uh, and that's enabled a lot of the, the digital product side of things. Um, where, you know, what places do you see this being applied slash, what specific strategies of leverage, like you talk about using levers, what are those levers? Yeah, Naval's classification of the, the broad categories of levers, it was capital and labor and um, product, mostly digital products, media, code, um, algorithms, things like that. Um, I would add tools as like a broad category that I think is very helpful um, and a good kind of starting place if you're thinking through all of the history of leverage really it started with started with tools and then um labor and capital came you know within the last you know thousand or two thousand years really um and 
now the digital, the, the no marginal cost of replication through um, all the digital products, the software and the code and media is um, really very transformative. And I mean, application wise, it, it's absolutely everywhere, right? Like um, you can imagine a, a levered, like, I mean, I, I see this, you know, you don't even have to imagine a levered um, a plumbing company that focuses on building leverage through capital, through tools, through digital media is, can be 10 or a hundred times more productive, frankly, than a, um, you know, an unlevered version of the same company. Uh, uh, e even if the unlevered one is, is maybe more skilled. Um, but the, th the other one brings in, um, you know, a larger team and consults with experts and uses an agency to kind of drive their marketing. Like that's a form of labor leverage. Um, just by pulling in experts to do things that, you know, at fractionally that they are better at, um, you know, a better website, a better lead gen model. Um, you can think about those, you know, the, the process of that CRM, um, having a bunch of no code tools and automations, um, and maybe getting scheduled with like an AI, a Calendly AI tool rather than, you know, multiple staffers or just that one plumber who's trying to kind of like get to his phone at the end of the night. Um, so that is a very kind of like analog example, but if you look at it purely like media business, um, you know, you can see even significantly more extreme results than that, I think. Um, yeah. And we're, we're going to see a lot of those examples and there's a lot of people, uh, you know, I've had some very interesting conversations with people who are kind of like intuiting their way forward through this. Like they, they kind of step in leverage and feel it sort of start. And they're like, Oh wow. That like, that feels amazing. I'm going to like kind of keep um, exploring new ways to do that. And like Jack Butcher is doing an incredible job of this. Nathan Latka is doing an incredible job with this. Um Zach Cantor built a, a fully his first company. Um, he started when he was in his, uh, I think he was just a teenager. It's basically a fully automated um, auto parts distributor. And he, his constraint on himself was like, I'm the only employee. Um, and so he built everything as, you know, as automations, essentially. He was a, like built it up to be a very, very like successful, like doing big numbers um, with one employee as one guy and that was a physical business. Um, so it, 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 we're going to see more and more of those stories, um, and smaller and smaller, smaller teams accomplishing incredible things. Um, you know, building on top of open source tools or pre-existing platforms like, you know, Shopify, Amazon, WordPress, um, stuff like that. Um, it's, it's going to be a very cool next, you know, I don't know. It's harder to see. It's hard to see past like 10 or 20 years even. Um, of what this is going to look like, but you know, the productivity increases in tools is, is recursive. It just keeps feeding back into the productivity of the people who are making the tools. Um, and so the returns on leverage are accelerating, um, dramatically. Yeah. And it's interesting. There's a few things I, I want to kind of unpack there. Um, first I, I thought it was super interesting the way you framed like the history of leverage from, you know, tools to um, then basically labor and then capital and then, uh, you know, now digital products. I didn't really think of it on like the time scale before, but what's also interesting about that to me is that, um, you know, you talked about like Joe Rogan. Uh, he's actually not really using the labor. I mean, if you want to, in a technical sense, there's people working on the, the tools, I guess, that he's using 
and whatnot. But like you said, he's kind of like a business of one. He's got Jamie who's helping him out. Uh, but besides that, it's, it's like a one man operation and he's making my understanding is hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Um, and, you know, having hundreds of millions, I presume of listens as well, uh, most popular podcast in the world. And he's up against like the New York times, which has, you know, I don't know how many people working for them. So it's kind of interesting. I just, I'd never really thought of it this way before, but I wonder if to some extent the newer, um, the newer forms of leverage tend to displace the older. Uh, and if, if that's not the case, at the very least, I think the, the older tend to evolve um, such that, you know, they're, they're different. Like, you know, you're not going to get much use out of like a tractor anymore, but you're going to get a lot of use out of something that I think you mentioned, basically something along these lines of like something that can respond to emails without you having to actually think or do anything. It just, and I just saw a business that was doing this the other day with like GPT-3, um, just mm-hmm. automating email responses and you just kind of can configure a couple things if you want to. Uh, and then you don't have to actually do any thinking and you save all that time and you can process, you know, between that and, and something like superhuman, you can probably process, you know, thousands of emails a day if you want. And then you only have to check, you know, once every day or once every couple of days or whatever it is. Um, do you have thoughts on like that evolution of leverage and how, uh, you know, tools are changing the nature of, of labor and capital are changing as well. Like for instance, labor doesn't need to be physical. You can hire people from India for less capital. Uh, and then on the capital side, you have things like crypto where one thing I'm excited about is I think sooner than later, and people are a little bit doing this, but um, you'll be able to basically, so like what I, I think about this for myself, honestly, I've, I've started this podcast and had, you know, pretty good guests on so far and some reasonable early success, but it actually takes a while, you know, the nature of compound interest and everything like that um, to, to be successful and to monetize and everything like that. But if you could, you know, sell, you know, if you could sell people that you're going to be the fact that you're going to be successful later, then they can actually give you money capital now. And then you can, um, you know, use that. And, and as long as they kind of buy the compound interest, uh, you'll be in good shape. Yeah, I, I think, um, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I mean, the, the, the labor and capital leverage are, are old and um, have been around a long time, but there are also, um, I think they're also pretty lindy, like they're not going anywhere. Um, and we do see those things transform. Right. So um, labor leverage may not look as it already doesn't look quite as much like, you know, hey, I have to go um, hire full time staff who sit in an office. Now it looks more like Upwork and more like, um, you know, agencies and more like, you know, short term contracts of people who find each other anywhere in the world through Dribble or through Twitter or, you know, through Scribd or whatever. Um, You know, in the future, it may be even more kind of, um, you know, like a distributed autonomous thing where there's just a general global universal um, central, you know, board of tasks that people can go and like pick up. And if you meet certain credential levels, you can take that work and it doesn't even matter who you are or where you are. Um, You know, so labor changes a lot. I think actually another way that labor um, leverage is evolving is that audiences and fans and, um, subscribers, like all of those things count as, as people and labor leverage. Um, 
and you know a big audience compounds sort of in the same way that you know a big investment account com- compounds um it's easier to grow you know a thousand followers a week when you already have a hundred thousand followers um than it is when you only have a thousand um so those things aren't um they aren't stagnant right labor and capital leverage are evolving um just as tools are evolving and just as products are evolving um you know you mentioned tractors in there too i think tractors are like a hugely underrated thing and if you look at the long you know one of the best ways to see the growth of labor over the course of human history is to look at the percentage of the human population that is involved in agriculture and so you know 500 700 years ago um in 1300 almost 70% of the population was dedicated to growing food and raising stock and just feeding themselves and the other 30%. And so, you know, we, we were not a very um, productive species compared to where we are now, where 3% of the population works in agriculture and feeds the other themselves and the other 97%, um, you know, give or take, not everybody, not everybody gets fed. Um, and, and we need to keep, kind of increasing productivity and distribution to, to solve that. Um, but the percentage of human society that is now focused on, on improving tools, on improving productivity, on building new things on, you know, fundamental research, um, you know, used to be a fraction of a fraction of a percent and now it's maybe 10%, maybe it's 30%. It depends a lot on the country. Um, but that is where we talk about, you know, those um, those gains getting reinvested into increased productivity, increased um, pace of innovation. Like that's where that comes from. Um, and so I think the tractor, you know, it may not be relevant to you, um, but it is very, very relevant to all of us in that it lets, you know, 10 people farm 10,000 acres and grow enough food for a thousand people, um, even though there's just that that team of 10 doing it. And that's, um, you know, those innovations and those pieces of, of leverage from tools and learning and capital are the foundation of every other, you know, bit of reinvestment that we all benefit from. Yeah, that, that's a really interesting point and in, in how, you know, and I, I didn't mean to uh, marginalize the, the impact of the tractor by any means. The, the noble tractor, yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, huge. And I think you, know, you laid it out perfectly in terms of how you know, people don't have to farm anymore. So now we can, you know, go and do this, like there's this whole knowledge worker economy or even manufacturing, whatever it is, people are building things. They don't have to worry about, uh, you know, growing food. Uh, and I personally, you kind of hinted at what, what seemed like a really intriguing vision uh, for the future, which was that, uh, you know, I, I might be reading between the lines a little bit, but basically that, you know, more than food can be, automated to the extent and obviously there's still people managing the leverage so automated might not be the exactly right word but um automated in the sense of like when you were speaking earlier i was thinking of like tim ferris four hour work week was one of the first things that helped me realize like wow this guy basically built this business you know he's not the only one working but it's his business and pretty much his business only and then he's got uh, leverage in basically all forms and he only has to work four hours a week. It's kind of like the sum of the book. Um, and so I think about a future where not only food is kind of taken care of by, you know, whatever minuscule percentage of the population that is able to do 
incredible work and feed the world with such strong leverage, but um, you, you also may have like healthcare that's able to be, you know, you don't need a doctor to do an operation anymore. You can have robots do operations and therefore, you know, the doctors can just help train the robots. And I sort of see a future and I don't know, I hope I live to see it where uh, people have their basic needs met across the board um, basically. And, you know, the, the definition of needs and wants can be argued, of course, but uh, mm-hmm. talking about like food and, and, you know, even superior nutrition to what we have now and then healthcare, education, um, these critical fields, you know, education, again, you can have a, a supreme education world where uh, instead of, you know, a hundred universities, we've got a few top competitors and maybe it turns out to be a hundred top competitors, but they're all online and the, the classes might have international audiences. And there's something to be said for maybe physical interaction for teaching and stuff like that. But um, the theme I guess I'm getting at is uh, services will hopefully become a lot more, a lot better, a lot more automatic. And then people can have this, you know, freedom that, that you value, that I value, that Naval, I think mentioned was like his core value um, to basically do whatever we want. And another thing that Naval talks about is like, you know, if he could have his choice, he would just kind of use his judgment all day to make money. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't really care about money anymore, obviously. But um, I think that's, you know, it's not just about make, making money. It's like what you kind of want to do. You want to be able to make decisions that change your life, that change other people's lives for the better. Um, at least, you know, people like me. And I, I do see a world where that can become a reality. Is that something, you know, am, am I synthesizing your view at all or am I totally off base? Um, well, you made a, you made a big leap in there that um, I'm not sure holds true. Um, I mean, one of the interesting things about it is like how much innovation has happened in the last, you know, one of the things that was, um, there was like panic about whenever there's technological innovation in agriculture was like, oh my God, what are all these people that we just displaced, you know, from farming going to do? Um, and even though innovation has very consistently replaced, you know, the need for humans to do, you know, first manual labor and increasingly like, you know, manufacturing jobs. Um, we still see unemployment, you know, relatively low and maybe increasingly low. Um, and so it is not that, um, you know, I, I guess at no point previously has anything that we um, automated ourselves out of doing resulted in us just like sitting around and doing nothing. Um, so, you know, while that is like maybe a I don't know if that'd be a utopia or a dystopia, but um, a, a strange kind of extreme future version. Um, n- nothing really that we've seen so far indicates that we would move towards that. Um, I, I don't know how comprehensive of a framework this is, but I kind of think of it as, um, you know, there's like three maybe different frontiers of human um, knowledge and innovation. And those are art and science and entrepreneurship. Um, and that maybe an increasing percentage of the population is working in each of those as some of the more, um, you know, some of the tasks that are just not frontier things that require, you know, our level of adaptability and innovation and education and um, creativity gets done, you know, more by AI, more by software, more by algorithms, more by robots. Um, so um, maybe we'll just see, you know, kind of the size of um, 
the size of, of people working on those, the size of percentage of people working on those frontiers will, will continue to increase. Um, which I think is, is only good for everybody, right? Like each, you know, each improvement in any of those areas benefits all of the rest of humanity. And so if we can have, you know, 20% of humans being artists and 20% ending up as, as entrepreneurs and 20% as scientists, like, you know, um, from where we are now, I think that would be a, a richer and happier and um, more well-functioning society for all of us. Right. So I, I definitely miss, misread your perspective a little bit and didn't mean to, you know, add my own, my own perspective and kind of call it yours uh, by any means, but I, I appreciate the, uh, the thoughts uh, you mentioned, you know, how, how that could be uh, potentially a, a happier world. Um, I, w- I want to talk, you know, I, I know we're coming up on time, but I want to talk briefly about uh, happiness, kind of the, the second key piece of, of Naval's book. And he'd probably say, um, I think he might say the, the more important part of the book, actually. Um, what, what are some of the key takeaways that, that you've taken from um, what Naval's had to say on, on happiness? Yeah, um, it's very interesting to have kind of put those two together in the book and um, get to think about some of those those trade-offs. Um, I'm really grateful that this project kind of got me studying those ideas early in life and, and thinking about them. Um, I mean, it, it really, the foundation of his um, insights on happiness are that it is kind of a, it is a choice, it is a skill, um, it is something you have to work towards um, it's really a set of, of habits. Um, your perspective is, is what determines, you know, your, your internal monologue and your perspective is what determines your happiness. Um, and that's trainable. Like most of us just have one and we don't think of it as, as trainable or changeable or malleable, but that, um, that internal voice, um, responds to training. It responds to, to meditation and, um, to practice. And, um, there are, there are, uh, quite a few kind of pieces in the book that talk about, you know, in specifics, how he does this and, and what he has changed and um, what he's read to kind of work towards being a baseline, increasing his baseline happiness. Um, it's, it's a little bit at odds with, you know, desiring things and going out and trying to build a company, change the world, um, you know, change your body, change your situation. Um, and so understanding the trade-offs between, between desiring, um, and happiness is, is a great place to start. Um, understanding that it's a skill is a very, um, is a very important place to start, but maybe the, the true zero point is just realizing that, um, you know, you're not, your unhappiness is not doing anyone any favors. Um, and that you can, you can choose to be happy and that will be better for you and better for everyone around you. Um, that's not to say it's easy, you know, a, a choice makes it feel like it's easy. Um, and it's not, it's, it's hard work and it's, um, it takes a long time, I think, to make that change, uh, in your life and, and to see it stick. Um, but it is worth doing and it is worth, um, is worth giving yourself that, you know, permission to do that and be that. Yeah, I want to end, I guess, with a, a quote from uh, Naval's, I don't know if he's a personal trainer or what he is necessarily, but the guy's name is Jersey Gregorick, and he, he has a quote that I like that's uh, hard choices, easy life. Uh, well, I guess before that, it's easy, easy choices, hard life, hard choices, easy life. And I think to your point, 
um, you know, framing something as a choice, it might seem super easy, but there's really difficult choices. And, uh, you know, as attractive as it might seem, happiness is, is maybe not the easiest choice for a lot of people, especially people who are highly desirous, uh, which tends to have a lot of overlap with, you know, really ambitious people, um, probably a lot of people who, who listen to the podcast. So uh, I think that's a, a super important point. Um, Eric, I know we're coming up on time. I want to thank you for, for spending so much with me today and for sharing your perspective and first and foremost for, for writing the book. Um, again, I really enjoyed it and I'm going to keep it handy for, uh, for reference in the future. I think it's, it's one of those books that's just really great to, you know, whether you're skipping to your notes or skipping to a specific part, um, it's really good as, as an ongoing reference. Um, so, so yeah, just really appreciate it. And why don't we end with, uh, if you could just tell people, where to follow you online and, you know, find the book and everything like that. Yeah, sure. Um, everything for the book um, is on the It's available there for free in the digital versions. Um, if you want the physical, you can, you can buy it on Amazon and the Kindle versions there as well. Um, I'm most active on Twitter. Um, I got open DMs. If you want to, you know, tweet me or DM me um, lots, lots more to come. Um, and I've got some, uh, some writing on ejorgensen.com. And that's where I'll kind of keep exploring some of these ideas. And um, in particular, I'm going to keep unpacking leverage and uh, see, where, see where that takes me. Awesome. Thank you, man. Cool. Thanks, Jake. Appreciate it.